Welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Well, good morning again. It's great to see you this morning. Um, I'm Father Morgan Reed. I'm the vicar here at Corpus Christi Anglican Church. And last week, what we did is we began a three-part series in the book of Habakkuk. There are three chapters. We have a three-part series that works out well. And um, today, what we're going to do, as you heard the scriptures read so beautifully by Christy, we, we are going to sit with Habakkuk on the watchtower. Um, we're going to listen for the answers that God is going to speak to Habakkuk. So as we begin this morning in Habakkuk chapter 2, let me pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and redeemer. Amen. Well, before just jumping into the book of Habakkuk, what I want to do this morning is consider uh, somebody who is a very important bishop in the history of the church. His name is John Chrysostom. You may have heard him before. You may not have. You may have heard Chrysostom. It's Chrysostom. Um, And he died about the year 400. So think about 400 years after Jesus was born. He was Syrian from the town of Antioch, which is today Antakya, Turkey. Um, So think uh, somebody of Middle Eastern origin. And when he um, was young, he was studying law under a really famous, distinguished pagan rhetorician named Labanius. And he gave that up because as a follower of Jesus, he discerned this call to go out into the desert and to become a monk. But later on, he had to return to Antioch because... He, didn't, he had some really poor health uh, and some health issues that took him away from being in the desert. Um, and later on, while he was in Antioch, uh, in the life of the church, he was called to become a priest. And so he, was, uh, he became a priest, and then later in 397, he was consecrated as a bishop. And then as a bishop, he was made the patriarch of Constantinople, which is kind of like the Pope of the East. Right, one of the popes, right? So, um, in his short time as bishop, he was persecuted. I mean, he was only a bishop for about 10 years. Uh, but he was persecuted by people who were claiming to follow Jesus because he had a real gift for afflicting people who were comfortable. And so, he was an incredibly gifted preacher. When you read his sermons, you know, even today, we still draw so much from them. People used to travel from far and wide to come hear John Chrysostom preach in Constantinople. Um, you can hear, and even when you read them in English, you can hear the, uh, his gifts of trying to search out the mysteries and wisdom of God and applying that with sensitivity to the needs of the people around him. Even as a bishop in a very prominent place, he never forgot the needs of the poor. He cared deeply for the needs of the poor and for um, justice to be done for people. And so he, he cared both for them spiritually and physically. You can hear that in some of his letters, too. And as a result of that, it was common that he would rail against abuses of wealth. 
in the capital city. And so, unfortunately, you can imagine that when you rail against the wealth and, like, the emperor is part of your audience, that's going to put you in a weird place. And so that did draw the, the anger of some really influential rich people in the city of Constantinople, one of whom was the emperor's wife, Eudoxia. Um, she was the wife of the eastern emperor, and she formed an alliance with uh, someone who was a, another pope, uh, pope of Egypt, Alexandria, a guy named Theophilus. And she said, hey, let's get together, form an alliance, let's have a synod. Um, and uh, they pulled together a synod, a church gathering, a pretty sham gathering. And what they did is they trumped up really false charges against John Chrysostom. As a result of those charges, he was sent into exile. Not once, multiple times. He was sent and brought back, sent and brought back. And finally, it was just too much. So in 407, on the way to being exiled to somewhere really remote, he succumbs to the elements and he dies in exile. It wasn't until like 31 years later, so that would be 441, that his relics were brought back from that remote place to be properly buried uh, in Constantinople. Later on, John Chrysostom is not only a saint, he's actually considered one of the rare titles of doctors of the church, even though he was martyred essentially by the church that he was trying so hard to save and to reform. We actually, in our, um, in our calendar, we celebrate his feast day on September 13th, so just a little less than a month ago. Now, why am I telling you about John Chrysostom? It is not just to give you a history lesson, although it is helpful to hear about the saints of old. The reason that I'm telling you this is because when I think about Habakkuk chapter 2, there is so much in Habakkuk chapter 2 that feels like the story of St. John Chrysostom um, and his faithful living. Amidst all those persecutions, there were still moments where he experienced God's faithfulness and God's goodness and grace as he was rebuking the unjust powers um, over him. And he, he left for us, uh, for the church, an example to follow of what it is to live like Christ. I mean, what he could have done with his Again, he was a great rhetorician. He could have pulled rank. He could have sought political power. He could have formed alliances with really wealthy people in the empire to overturn power, and that's not what he did. Um, he had a long view of faithfulness, of following Jesus. And that long view encouraged others to follow Jesus with integrity. And so similarly, Habakkuk encourages us in this passage this morning to take a long view of faithfulness, whether it's the unjust leaders of Jerusalem, whether it's the attack of the unjust pagan Babylonians, or for us, the experiences of unhealthy churches or a job or a subculture or a family system. It can be easy to think that under those systems, the only way out, the only way to change things is through power. Only power counts. But when Christianity tries on the robes of empirical power, it always looks odd. Um, Christianity doesn't look good with the robes of empire on. It doesn't look like Jesus. And instead, what Habakkuk 2 teaches us is that faithful people who live by patient hope are going to experience God's abiding presence. Faithful people who live with patient hope are going to experience God's abiding presence. 
In verse 2, it says that God answered Habakkuk. And, and that's the thing that Habakkuk was asking for all of chapter 1 when we looked at those questions of why, Lord, are you making me see this? How long are you going to look at this and not answer? Um, he was supposed to write the vision clearly on tablets um, so that those who run with the message can read it. And the fact that the message needs to be written down probably indicates that it needs to be remembered. And when and remembered not just because they need to run and remember it, but because it needs to be remembered beyond the lifetime of Habakkuk. And so Habakkuk doesn't actually get to see the justice that uh, he's going that he wants to experience in his lifetime. We know that from history. But there is a hope in this message that he's given, and that hope is going to extend beyond the lifetime of the prophet, which is why it's so important that it's written down and read. Last year, around, I don't know if it was around this time, but last year at some point, we did a whole sermon series on the virtue of patience. And one of the books that I had recommended in that time was a great book by Alan Kreider uh, called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, The Improbable Rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire. And one of the reasons that I love that book is that what it highlights is the very slow and substantial way that God's kingdom grows um, in an age where the empire is actually opposed to the work of Jesus. Um, this is not unfamiliar to us in a society that is opposed to the work of Jesus. There's a, there's a patience that we need to have in discipleship. We don't need the empire to be Christian uh, or even for Christians to necessarily have political power or to win a culture war for individuals to come to know uh, the love of God that's found in Christ. And that's kind of amazing. And so instead, the, the patient and the slow process of discipleship that we see in the church early on is the means of growth in God's kingdom. It's kind of like when Jesus compares it to a mustard seed that grows. It's a slow kind of growth, but it's substantial. Uh, and that gives me a lot of hope. Just as in Habakkuk's, Habakkuk's case, things might actually get worse before they get better. Um, and when that happens... The delay is in our expectations, but the delay is not on God's faithfulness. That's one of the, the, the hopes and the joys in Habakkuk 2 is when things tarry or when they wait and they seem to be stalled, the delay is not the delay is in our expectations. The delay isn't in God's faithfulness. And so in verse 4, what we come to is something that's quoted actually quite often in the New Testament. This is the revelation that was supposed to be written down on those tablets that were just mentioned. It says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Even though Babylon is going to come through, this, this foreign power that God was raising up, and they were going to leave nothing but scorch earth behind them, uh, the promise is that the righteous one will live by his faithfulness. And so what this verse teaches is three important things for us. It teaches, one, that the, the proud will never become upright, that those who are justified by faith will live by their reliance on God, and three, even as we wait, the wicked will continue in their boastful ways. Those things will be true. And what was true of the leaders of Jerusalem was true for the armies of Babylon, um, and I think it's still true today. Self-reliance and pride are not going to sustain us in trials. 
And when, when we encounter trials, there's nothing outside of Jesus himself that can sustain us. There's no amount of friends that we can accumulate and surround ourselves with. There's no amount of important people that we can be connected to. Uh, there, there's no amount of things that we can put on our calendar to keep us busy. There's no amount of money that we can accumulate to sustain us in this life. They can't satisfy us. They can't help us persevere in trials. And they can't make us right in our relationship with the Lord. So faith and faithfulness, depending on the English translation you're reading, um, it'll translate this verse, just will live by his faith or faithfulness. There are actually two sides to the same coin. Um, the just, those justified by faith will live by their steadfast trust. The sooner that we recognize that you and I are not in control, the better off we are. We're made right through faith in Christ, uh, and then in living into that faithfulness, we're going to find the life that Christ has for us, even in the darkest night of the soul. And so, oh, just as an illustration of this, um, and it's really not a su- super substantial one, but in a very small way, our building team um, had a trial as we were searching for a new space. As many of you know, we're going to be in a new space in January. And there are lots of kinds of options that we were looking at, you know, hotels, rec centers, public schools, senior living centers with a chapel, all sorts of things we were looking at. And, and there was one uh, that we thought was really going to work for us, that was really going to pan out. We went pretty far down that road only to have it vetoed by something completely out of our control. And that forced me to kind of sit back and go, okay, God, why is this so difficult? I mean, starting a church is hard enough, but like this building thing is about to set me over the edge. <laughs> and, you know, and so I just stopped and <laughs> breathed and committed that to prayer. And, and with our building team, you know, we prayed and and. Eventually, long story short, out of kind of nowhere, God did provide a space for us to meet. So, like I mentioned before, we'll be at Prince of Peace Lutheran School in January. And um, as somebody who I'm very close to often reminds me, God's no to something is a yes to something better. And there are so many ways that this option is, is better than the one that I thought we were going to be in. Um, so after praying, I tried not to think about it too much. But I didn't want it to overwhelm all the other good things that are happening at the church. But I just wanted to focus on the things that are actually forming people. Um, not that the building is not substantial in that process, but when we think about our formation, you know, I was thinking we need to keep creating ways for people to pray. So like doing midweek Eucharist. We need to keep making disciples um, through different uh, ways that we overlapping our interactions together and, and, and growing deeper in our formation groups and all those sorts of things. And, um, and we need to grow deeper in our obedience to Christ as we worship together. Like Those are the substantial things. And so I didn't want to think too much about the thing that was causing me all sorts of internal consternation. And so it, it, it doesn't always happen that smoothly. right? That's a good example where I actually got to see the resolution. But things don't always happen that smoothly because we don't always get to see the larger plan of God's mercy in our lives. Uh, But that doesn't take away from the fact that God's overarching plan is one of love and mercy 
and of salvation as we endure trials in trusting him. Kind of like what I talked about last week, where if you scrape away the veneer of what feels like cruelty or justice, you actually find God's mercy. And it's because of that that you and I can wait with patience. And so the chapter, as it goes on, you heard a lot of descriptions uh, about Babylon. And chapter 2, verses 5 through 20, fill out the vision of chapter 4. There's this series of five woes, woe oracles. And uh, it's a taunt song where all of the nations that were oppressed by Babylon now get to rise up and sing a song of mocking at the death of Babylon the Great. The images that you find in chapter 2, they're really striking. Um, When you do read Hebrew, there's a lot of word alliteration and poetry. It's really beautiful. The images are of a pillager who is pillaged, a fortification that gets dismantled, a civilized person who becomes demoralized, a shameless person that's defamed, and one who worships mute idols becoming silenced before the Lord. Now, before we, you know, misunderstand what's happening, it can be really tricky to apply passages in the Old Testament about Israel's enemies, um, because what is nationally true for Israel is often spiritually true for us. And and so God doesn't have a covenant today with, with a nation like he did with Israel. And so it would be incorrect to think, oh, well, this is the fate of America's enemies, for example. This is not the way that we would want to apply that. And so as St. Paul says later on in the New Testament, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, right? But it's against the principalities and the powers of this age. And so our enemies are the things that war against our souls. Um, whether those things are systemic sins from the culture, or the family that we grew up in, our subculture, or something else. You know, whether, whether it's an addiction or some other besetting sin that you find yourself struggling with like it's just always at the door knocking it might even be places of insecurity where when somebody pokes that spot on you we are just tempted to lash out with all kinds of sinful responses that are disproportionate to the thing they said or did and that's how the church often looks at these kinds of passages about israel's enemies and so when you look at Verse 14, I love, there's another church father named St. Jerome. He talks about verse 14. Verse 14 here says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. And what he says about the waters uh, covering the seas is that the waters are the teaching from the apostles. Uh, It's equated with the teaching of the apostles. The waters of the Lord are, and God is undoing the destruction that's caused by the devil, and that destruction he compares to being brackish water. Um, And he says it's being undone by this flushing out of the teaching of the apostles. And so I like that imagery. It's the the mission of the church to carry that on. The ministry of the apostles is in, in word and in sacrament, in baptizing and in discipling people. We're doing that ministry of flushing out the brackish water so that um, that keeps things from being sustained. We are giving life to the world. And then at the end of the chapter, we discover that Babylon's idols have no help that they can provide for Babylon uh, on, that, on the day of the Lord when there's judgment. Anything that we choose to rely on other than God himself is an idol. 
And, and it depends on us to actually sustain its life. So by contrast to the idols that are mentioned, it says that God is in his holy temple and he is speaking both mercy and judgment from his dwelling place. Which, as we know, the temple of the Lord isn't just a physical place in Jerusalem, that it's both in heaven and it's in each of his saints. Those who make idols um, who are silent are themselves going to be made silent before the Lord who brings life and will judge from his temple. And we may not see God's promises fulfilled now or even in our lifetime, but what the text says is, do not grow weary. Keep waiting in faith, with patience, because God's faithfulness will eventually be manifest. And when we began the dialogue with Habakkuk back in chapter 1, we began with Habakkuk asking God some really hard questions. And he was searching for God's hidden mercy um, that had been underneath what felt like, and on the appearance seems like, really cruel judgment. We end chapter 2 then with Habakkuk standing before God's temple, hushed and in awe. And there are a lot of ways that Habakkuk didn't yet fully grasp all the implications of God's answers to his questions. There's still a lot left unsaid. But I think that's true of us too. Sometimes God brings us to a place into his presence where we're called to be still and to know that he is God. More than we're called to understand all the intimate workings of his plan. And by being in God's presence, Habakkuk's assured that God is the Lord, that God will execute justice in prosecuting all those who violate the law, and that God's mercy abounds for all who will trust in him and live out that trust. And so this is part of what it means to join Habakkuk in taking the longer view. We entrust ourselves to Christ day in and day out, not searching for answers necessarily, but searching for God's mercy as we come in silence before his presence. We carry on a life of faithfulness and patience as the way to realizing God's blessing. Let me pray for us. O God of peace, who has taught us that in returning and rest, we shall be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall be our strength. By the might of your spirit, lift us, we pray, to your presence, where we may be still and know that you are God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.